Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, we're back for another great episode of Gov Actually. This is one that that has been we, we've been working on trying to get this to happen uh, through um, through all kinds of interesting uh, twists and turns. But but finally, we've actually been able to coordinate our schedule with that of our great guest uh, Amanda Renteria, who is the new executive director of Code for America, and and. If you have a few extra minutes, I, I encourage you to go and look at Amanda's Wikipedia site because I thought I had a tortured career, one that, that, that took twists and turns. Amanda's is, is awesome. Um, from Goldman Sachs to being a local school teacher to running for Congress, for working on the Clinton campaign, for being the first Latina chief of staff to a Senator, Senator Stabenow from Michigan, um, Amanda's background history and experiences is, is just, it's, uh, it's really commendable, super interesting. And of course it would, it would end up with her running an organization as fascinating as Code for America. So I, I think that's where I'm going to leave it because I want to hear how Amanda described Code for America and, and her work and, and perhaps how she got, how she got there. Sure. Well, it's good to be on and that we were able to finally figure out schedules, um, anyway, and it's just good to see you guys and um, that this podcast exists. Um, and the reason for me that this is so such an important discussion is I think there's a lot of mystery about how government works. And one of the things at Code for America that we try and do is really make it easy for people, make it easy for people who are using its systems, make it easy for people who are in government working with people. And really the idea of Code for America is how do we partner with government to actually make it work. It's as simple as that, but we focus particularly on low-income community programs like uh, food stamps, like um, earned income tax credit. And what we do is we really try and make it easy. We center the people we serve. So as as an example, um, for a long time, food stamps in this country, in the state of California, was a desktop application, which meant you needed broadband. And uh, the very first question you had is, how do you sign up for it? Well, if you don't have a computer at home or broadband, it makes it pretty difficult. And so the first thing we did is how do you make this mobile? And then how do you make sure that you're asking the right kinds of questions so that people feel welcomed when they enter a government program, even though it's online? And so more of our work has obviously surfaced during the pandemic and it's become much more just really in people's lives. And we wanna make sure that uh, everyone who wants to access government, particularly those who need it most, that we do it in a way that is welcoming, that actually gets them the services they need. And that over time, government gets better and better at making sure to center the people it serves. It's interesting, Amanda, your, your background in the Senate, because I've, I've often felt that, that Congress and the policymakers have a role in this because sometimes they make the program so complicated that the access barriers are in the legislation itself, not necessarily at the technology. They're, the chain is as strong as its weakest link and a lot of the links are, are weak, but 
I think about earned income tax credit, and that can be such a complicated formula to try to apply for. Um, does Code for America get involved at, at every level or just at that touch point at the end of the process where the citizen is trying to gain access? So we've, uh, over the more recent times, particularly during the pandemic, we, are, we were able to share um, with policymakers, here is what the obstacle is, change this policy. As a very good example of this, schools were closed, what was going to happen? Federal government put out what's called pandemic EBT, which would help parents um, basically get cards for buying groceries, right? Now that their kids weren't eating lunch in, in, uh, in school. And so what we were able to do on the back end is tell state governments, um, hey, you know, that, that in-person interview that you did in order to verify people, that's a major barrier to people getting um, access to food stamps, getting access to um, cash assistance. And so how about we move that and we verify in other ways? And so in very short order during a pandemic, what happens is governors around the country, policymakers around the country said, ah, we're in a pandemic, we'll, we'll remove those barriers for now. Now what has happened is we've gone back and said, listen, these programs really worked. We were able to reach way more kids during this period of time who really needed food assistance. Um, maybe this should be made permanent. And so we've not, not only have we actually done the work in order to get resources out to people, but we have now shared a lot of those policy uh, lessons. And what I will say is policymakers today are really much more open um, to seeing what can we do to change. It used to be a, a nice to have to have technology. And I think what you have seen from this pandemic is a need to have today for a lot of families all across America. Yeah, I was actually, um, before we, we joined this call, I was actually reading chunks of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. This is the kind of thing that Danny and I do. Um, you know, a coffee break, but uh, there is within that bill over and over and over again, uh, resources set aside to digitize these interactions and to try to take um, uh, many of these interactions into a mobile environment. Do you, do you see this as an area that Code for America is really gonna, is gonna run into? Absolutely, I mean, this is exactly what we saw over the last year. Um, just as an example, earned income tax credit, a lot of the ways those services get distributed are volunteer sites, tax center sites. All of them happen to be in person. Pandemic hits, and we actually stepped in to help make a lot of these VITA sites online with United Way, bringing people together to really reach people digitally. But frankly, we should have already been doing that as a government. And so, um, and I think this is the new way. I think we've all gotten, we have all become quite used to being able to do things through our phone digitally, not having to go to the social services to get things done. And I think there's a real understanding today that it's possible. So some of what we recognize is that just that idea of people recognizing that something is now possible. You don't have to write a paper form, but you can now do it online. And the value of some of these online tools. So in earned income tax credit, what we quickly realized is it wasn't just about having a simple trustworthy app that really spoke to people in their language, but quickly, quickly we learned is people need help through it. Some folks were, it was a difficult, a more difficult form, even in its most simple form, there were still big questions. And so we built out a volunteer site with VITA, with our own volunteer network, so that people could go um, you know, one-on-one -on -one all the way through those forms. Um, and so that's what I think we will uh, not only see or demanded by the people, 
but we are seeing government officials, we are seeing the IRS take a good look and say, okay, how do we do this in a way that's really reaching people? And whether it's a simple app or a simple question, or it's the add-on of needing a volunteer help, how do we put that in the system so that these benefits actually get delivered? Yeah, you know, it's it's it, going off the rescue plan comment, Dan, that you made, and looking ahead to the current administration's infrastructure plan, which I think they're going to call the Jobs Act. Um, there's a lot in there about broadband. In fact, there's been some interesting, uh, you know, kind of issues out there in, in the media and social media about whether whether broadband is infrastructure or not um, versus like roads and bridges and um, and clearly it is, but you know when I think Amanda about moments like this where you know going back a few years where it's like a computer in every classroom was like the moonshot or the ambition, right? And I think if you mapped which classrooms got the computer first and tracked all the classrooms, probably still have not achieved that moonshot. But there really is a a lagging uh, benefit or access for underserved populations. Um, and, you know, you mentioned talking to Congress and uh, is there recognition, you think, that, that this is what happens if we don't plan for it better, that you have, you know, underserved populations, the last to, to reach the access point that we set our ambition for? So I am hopeful that we are, not only are we having this conversation, but you are seeing it in the rescue plan in terms of um, attention to tech mobilization, attention to how we deliver services. But I, but I have to tell you, we have a long road. I mean, I grew up in small rural town America. My parents were former farm workers and it's still quite a low income community. And it was only five years ago that actually the entire school had, or kids in the school had access um, to the internet. So when you think about you know, the, the efforts that people have put in place a long time ago for every kid to have a computer in their classroom or for every family to have access to the internet. You know, this is only five years ago, four hours from Silicon Valley that my old high school didn't have that. And so one of the things that I hope and I see that this pandemic has surfaced is the inequities around the country. And so long as we keep that in, inequity conversation, racial injustices conversation, if we can keep that on the forefront and actually start to measure what are these gaps of services, where are these areas that aren't, don't have access to um, the internet, if we can keep those front and center, then we, these communities won't be forgotten, but we actually have to make sure the spotlight stays even after, after the rhetoric goes. Uh, Cass Sunstein wrote that, that book, Simpler, about this idea, how do you make these processes more transparent and therefore more fair and therefore more equitable? How do you give back uh, the time and how do you, how, by making processes uh, simpler, you know, there's the whole measure through the, um, the Paperwork Reduction Act of burden, administrative burden, hours consumed. Uh, after the tax code, the single largest burden hour exercise is actually SNAP um, eligibility recertification. Um, there's a big provision within the um, within the uh, uh, the bill within the this big new stimulus bill to actually modernize uh, SNAP. Where else do you think that there are opportunities to give back time and frankly make it make it a little less stressful and and a little easier to to be poor and find your way through um, systems in this in this country? 
Yeah, it's um, it's not simply in SNAP, right? It's in all the different social safety net benefits, SNAP, WIC, TANF. Um, and then there's quite a few state programs that each state puts in place as well. But if you imagine, you know, our government buildings are very sturdy. And the idea when they fir were first put into place is that everybody would come to those government buildings as opposed to this mind shift where it's not about people coming to government, but it's about government making sure to meet people where they are. And it's not simply you need to come to this building and then that building and then that building. In technology, you can do it in such a way where you have one welcoming door to all the different benefits, which we call integrated benefits. Um, the state of Minnesota right now is doing an incredibly interesting project. Um, we are in about half the population now where they are actively saying, how do we have one intake process for people? And then they're able to um, combine a lot of those benefits together. That really is the way it should be, right? We should be able to um, put in our information one time and see what are the things that I, uh, I, I'm eligible for and then they have that process underway. And if there are any missing questions, you can do that pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, um, either money shows up in a card in your mail or in your bank account. I mean, these are things that a government in the 21st century should be able to do. And we're, we're doing that one state at a time, one program at a time. But I am very hopeful in that. Um, I think everyone's become really well aware of how do we make this not only more efficient, but also more equitable. No, no governor um, really wants to be in a place where they're leaving out certain communities. They know that affects their economy. And I think we've got this window right now where the federal government is really putting resources into equitable outcomes. And now we need that through thread in technology, in talent, in process uh, to make sure that goes all the way through and that you see true systems change um, for generations. Yeah, I'm going to give a, a glass half empty, Amanda, then glass half full and, and have you react to it. Glass half empty. And I, I was listening to a story recently. I think it was NPR. I'm not sure where they were talking about how COVID has like really made the uh, inequity gap more apparent, especially in education, yeah. where they're seeing like underserved populations struggling more um, uh, on testing and other things after a year of, of remote learning. Um, and, and so the glass half empty is that, um, that we're seeing these gaps and they're probably are not yet fully measured or understood, but there's been a, a real challenge for certain populations in today's world. The glass half full is, can we point to COVID as a rallying cry? Can this, can this situation where you have such an acute view of how the gap manifests itself in real negative outcomes for certain people versus others, can that be the type of thing we need to really, um, really call more attention to this? So have you, have you heard from your vantage point stories of concern that the COVID has, has uncovered and do you also feel like maybe this is a point, an inflection point where we can call more attention to it? It absolutely is an inflection point. Um, we are both having racial injustices conversations while a new administration is coming into view with making one of the biggest investments, potentially by the end of this, the biggest investment that we've ever seen in our lifetime in terms of putting resources back in for some of your lowest income programs, lowest income communities. And so I do believe this is a very unique window for us to make sure our systems are right. 
But here's the way we think about it at, at Code for America is technology is going to happen. People are gonna use technology and make things more efficient. The question is, what are they making more efficient? If you're just taking systems that produce inequities and you make that more efficient, it means you will have wider gaps exactly. down the road. That's right, right? That's why we believe that right now you have to have the intention to bend it towards communities that have been left out, to bend it towards low-income communities. Um, we've seen this at different parts and times in our lives when you, know, when you had the Great Recession. How are you affecting, in general, workers in the auto industry? You had to be intentional about it at the time in order to try and revamp an industry, just as an example. If we're really thinking right now um, that we need to address an economic inequalities, racial injustices, then we need to be intentional about how we are investing in outreach for some of the most empowering programs that are out there. Um, and that's where SNAP comes in. That's where Earned Income Tax Credit comes in. These are programs that are the uh, most effective anti-poverty programs. We should all be talking about them and we should be right now putting in measures in place so that when these policies get implemented, we can actually see what's happening and then iterate in real time in order to change that curve that has really led to more inequality over our lifetime. So, I mean, the, the fact that Code for America is, is, is trading and operating at this level is just so exciting and interesting to me. I remember back to the, to the early days and have been a long uh, a friend and colleague of, of your predecessor, Jen Palka. Can you talk a little bit for folks about the history of Code for America from, you know, from your, your, your roots in, in San Francisco and hackathons and really working <laughs> with cities to this, you know, becoming a really powerful national force in driving and leading this important discussion? Yeah, I mean, when Jen first started this idea it was like, how do we get tech folks into government, right? We can use that experience, that understanding, that way of thinking to try and help government modernize. Um, or just in general to bring the voice of this civic tech community um, to, communi to, to solve problems, whatever they may be, whether they're government or community oriented. And so a lot of the hackathons were about how do we get together, come up with a problem, then how do we figure out how to solve that? Those are, that is still happening around the country. We actually have about 90 chapters and they do everything from rapid response projects to vaccinate MA, which is to help when the government systems fell apart. How do we come together and build a system um, that can really help seniors find where they can get vaccinated or mutual aid during um, crisis situations that happen, floods, et cetera, around the country? Um, so it started off as, and still is, a very active civic engagement where people get together to solve a problem. What, what Code for America also, though, learned over the last decade is to really make systems change. You also need to go deeper with governments and with systems to make, to make change that can really, um, really last and stick um, and change the way government sees, you know, communities sees people. And that really drove us to where is a private sector missing or where are market failures? And when you dug in there, the minute you did, you, you began to see these underserved programs. You began to see Get CalFresh, um, which is the food stamp program in California, saying, how is it possible that it's missing all these folks? We know with technology, we can actually reach them, but also we can help government really see who they are and get benefits to them. And so what we, what we realized over the course of time is that 
you can do a lot of work at the local level with volunteers and really build some really great solutions. But to have systems change at scale, you've got to be partnering, sitting with um, government officials or government uh, public public servants to actually solve some of these problems. And that's what we've done over time in both uh, in food assistance, which is uh, food stamp programs, um, in integrated benefits. How do you build them across uh, across different programs with EITC or tax benefits? And that's also includes a child tax credit. And then with automatic record clearance, how do when all of a sudden the cannabis law changed, when marijuana changed, shouldn't it just be automatic? And we found a way to do that in the state of California, working with about three other states as well um, to help them with their system so the technology actually can implement policy in the way that it was intended. Amanda, as we start to think about wrapping up, let me ask you this question. What, where's the center of gravity in terms of solving some of this? Is it, is it with state governments or is it with the federal government? So I think we're seeing the federal government go in the right direction, right? I am excited about the money that is going into really addressing um, racial injustices and ensuring a safety net, particularly for kids in poverty. So we've got that in place. My worry and the thing I wake up every day is thinking, are states ready to catch that? Are states ready to link into that and be that last mile where it really does find all those kids who are in poverty and pulls them up, right? Or finds those families that they can connect to that they haven't connected to or have been left out. And so that's the stuff that keeps me up at night and where I believe we've got one system in place, but it's got to roll all the way down um, to make sure that we find these communities and families who really do need um, government to work well. Given, given the, the history you told us about, given the area of focus that you're working on, um, where would you like Code for America to be 10 years from now? <laughs> Non-existent. I would love the systems to work themselves. We often talk about this at Code for America, which is we wanna be the step function so that these programs just as a matter of system work and that we have actually helped governments think about the people they serve in a different way where actually they have their own feedback loops. Our volunteer network, I think that 10 years from now, I would love it to be much more active, vibrant with our government leaders so that there is that continual feedback loop, that continual evolution. Um, but the actual work that we're doing in programs, I'd love it to just exist so that people's records are cleared automatically once they serve their sentence, once, once the law changes on cannabis. I'd love it to automatically be that it's off your record as it should be, right? I'd love it to be that food stamp programs that that gap is zero, right? Okay, one or 2%, fair enough. People move and sometimes systems have to catch up, but that, that would be the ultimate goal. I, lo I love picturing you, Amanda, on your last day saying, my work here is done. <laughs> that, that's always, uh, you know, the same thing as a chief of staff, right? You, your work here is done to let other people fill in those gaps, but hopefully you've left the system itself better. So one of the, my favorite parts about dedicating my career to, to, to government and to public service in various different ways and forms is I meet a lot of people where it's like, that person's a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And Amanda, you are definitely someone who's fighting for the solutions and um, it's inspiring and uh, really appreciate you coming on. Everything you do, everything Code for America does, your mission is to try to 
uh, advance uh, outcomes for for people that uh, that cannot cannot always fight for themselves, and so it's really really laudable. So thank you for joining, Dan. Any final words? No, I I I just would like to echo uh, Danny's appreciation and praise um, for the organization and and just the stick to of the group, all the volunteers and their deep commitment, and then the good fortune the organization had to uh, to find you, Amanda, and and convince you to take this task. It's uh, it's great that you're there. No, I, 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 um, I'm the lucky one that gets to talk about um, the great team we have and the mission that we have to make this country better for all people. So thank you guys for allowing me to do that. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. All right, Danny, it was really great to have Amanda on as a guest. Uh, we're going to go to break and when we come back we should try to unpack some of the ideas and, and how they fit in uh, to, you know, to some of these broader discussions we've had over the last couple of years here at GovActually. Gov Sounds great. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. Okay, Danny, we're back and well rested after the break um, uh, and chance to kind of process and think a little bit about that, that incredible conversation we had with Amanda. Uh, yeah, I don't think we've given enough attention at Gov actually as she was talking to this idea of equity hmm. access to government hmm. programs. And it's such a, a big, you know, when we launched this podcast, it was like we want to get under the hood of government and how it actually works and, you know, make it geeky and non-political. Um, and, you know, I think this is an important topic that, that has been missing from our portfolio in the past few years. I, yeah, I think I think at some level it, it, it's implied in much of uh, what we've talked about in terms of increased effectiveness, efficiency, focus on employees, customers, and outcomes. But that's the, um, I think the big challenge and the important, uh, important current part of the dialogue around equity and fairness and access is that it shouldn't be the unspoken part, it should be the spoken part. It should be the part you start with rather than the part you imply. And what's great with the work that they're doing is that it really is very much focused on those issues. How do you make this work? How do you make these programs how do you make them work better for the people who need them the most? Yeah, and um, I know government employees spend a lot of time thinking through these gaps and these questions. And they and more and more, Dan, I think I think technology and and some of the challenges the government has with investing in the right technology and deploying it successfully and coordinating with other um, other dot govs or dot states in order to make it all work is not easy stuff. And um, it takes a while. It's expensive. There's a lot of risk. And, you know, I mean, when we talked, when we did our end of the decade show <laughs> and we came up with the conclusion that the single biggest government story of the decade was the healthcare.gov website crash. That was... Uh, right. That, and and that's just that's just one website controlled by the federal government. I mean, it's just it, technology continues to vex um, public sector in a big way. 
No, I, I think it's, uh, there was something she said that, that really resonated with me, this idea that the government building was originally built as this platform for the delivery of, of public service. And when we were over, at, when I was over at GSA, one of the things we did was we launched a new third service called the Technology Transformation Service, which was to try to recognize the fact that the way government services were gonna be delivered in the future, and frankly, more and more in the present, was through technology. Um, just this week, it was an exciting bit of news that the new administration is appointing a new head of GSA who comes from the technology world, Robin Carnahan. And so what are you seeing is the camera slowly in the kind of um, way that the government camera or, 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 or ship of state turns, slowly turning to recognize that more and more and more that this is gonna be the way that services are delivered and that they're gonna to have to get better and better and better at doing it. I, I didn't know that about that there's a new GSA administrator. That, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, not, I think- Not yet a new GSA administrator, it's a new GSA new administrator. GSA nominee. Nominee, so right, right, right. right. watch that. Yeah, and um, you know, she had, she, had, she had the building reference for you. She, Amanda, the EITC reference for exactly. me. Exactly, she was a very well-prepared guest. Yeah. That's a great point. Like federal buildings are, you know, big, clunky, thick walls. Why is that? <laughs> well, because they're, they're built to last for 100 years and they're built yeah. to take thousands and thousands and thousands of people running through them every day and going from door to door, as she described. I mean, literally door to door sometimes, you know, you will. You will go and and it, you know um, when I worked at the state level, I was um, my first one of my first projects as an intern in the Massachusetts state government was actually working on a form, an intake form at the Massachusetts Department of Employment Services. And if you think about a form, like the first ten or fifteen kind of questions it asks, you know, essentially name, address, um, other identifier, every form asks, and you have to fill it out over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, it's the question is, could you create systems and structures that allow you to have some kind of identifier so that you don't have to blow through that? And in Cass's book, Cass Sunstein's book, Simpler, asks questions like, can you build systems that kind of recognize who you are and maybe even offers up services or programs based on your eligibility rather than you also have to be a, like a reference librarian and figure out what you do qualify for? Yeah, it raises, it's, it's always complexity, right? Because that type of program raises privacy issues and mm -hmm. government big brother issues and identity theft issues. If there's one number that unlocks who you are, right? It, you know, like your social security number. Or your social security number and it's existed since the 1930s. But yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> yeah, no, but, but the thing is, is that we purposely don't want to use our social security number. Right. As, right. a as a as a single personal identifier mm -hmm. because of the the uh, the trouble that would potentially get us all into with respect to uh, identity theft and other versions of fraud and the implications of of privacy imagine someone hacking in and then knowing everything about you from one site hack knowing your medical records and your financial records just from one having one number code. Well, as a former federal employee, you realize that that information has been hacked out of your, uh, out of your personnel file. Uh, I'm, I've, I've repressed that memory. <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. There is a whole though effort and it's probably worth another gov actually to go get 
a cybersecurity expert. Some, there are, are a lot of people who are working on this identity issue because the simple fact is um, uh, saying that, you know, we're really worried about it is not, uh, does not replace the fact that it, identity information is being collected by federal agencies all the time. And it's being stored in, you know, independent siloed systems that may or may not have high levels of security, transparency, and accountability. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe the time has come to realize, like, look, I'm, we're we're going and authenticating on this Zoom platform to have this conversation. We're we're authenticating on our email to 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 log into things. We do it on our banking. Um, and we'll do it with the government. Um, uh, you know, maybe it's time that we figure out some way to have some, some structure that allows us to simplify our ability to, to get services or, or meet our obligations in terms of taxes and, and other things. Um, and I just, I, 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 you know, I, I think that the, the fear of, of being hacked should recognize the fact that we're, we're already being hacked. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Although I don't want to get hacked again. I don't want to get hacked more regularly. Yeah, and, and, um, and, and more and more successfully and in a way that actually has more implications. But yes, I, I think we need to do I think policymakers, there needs to be more debate on this question of data access, data privacy, because we are moving in a direction of digital platforms for our health records, right. for our financial records, um, our okay. digital fingerprint, if you will, mm -hmm. um, feels there like it's inevitable. Look, but that debate has to be better informed. You remember when we had the, the, the famous social media hearings in Congress uh, a couple of years ago, and it was very clear that some of the people asking the questions, you know, had not- oh, and not tweeted, never mind, you know, never mind, visited Facebook. And so these are, you know, at some level, and it's not, it's not in any way a criticism, but it, it is a it is an observation that there isn't a high level of sophistication in the policy setting world around what the how our technological systems actually work. And what I love about Code for America is that they're attracting more um, talented technologists to the public sector realm to help make that conversation vastly more technical and informed. Yeah. So let me close on this point. I, I, am, I think there's going to be so many lessons learned and changes coming out of this pandemic that impact the government. It's hard to unpack them all. It's like we've had these various moments in our lifetime, right? We've, we've lived through Y2K, 9-11, Katrina, you know, the, um, the financial uh, crisis in 2008. Um, and this one event seems to me to be the most complicated and rich and textured in terms of potential redirections on government. Um, you know, everything from readiness for crisis to ways of working uh, to, um, to uh, New insights into inequity, uh, technology as a as an enabler of of government services. I mean, I mean, I don't mean to overstate it, but I just feel like for years we're going to be seeing new vectors of government that will have emanated from this past year. 
And and if we as a society are going to have suffered all the the personal, human, and and economic loss, I certainly hope that there will be important lessons that we can take from it and adjustments we can make so subsequent generations can be spared that pain. So I think that that's really our our responsibility and obligation yeah. to make sure that we do take away those lessons and we use our societal systems, including our government, to to make sure that that never happens again. Yeah. And it's like, it's not just operations of government. It's also philosophies like mm. individual rights and freedoms mm. and, and, and how they can be uh, directed differently in the face of a health crisis and, you know, how we communicate um, information, uh, what's required by the federal government. What does CDC do? There's, there's all incredible rich set of questions we're learning in real time. I'm always glasses half full. This has been an awful tragedy in so many levels. I really hope that we can rapidly learn from it and and have have less political and more substantive uh, discussions about about how to get better at what we do as a result of this past year. That's what I love about what Amanda and Code for America are doing is that they are uh, adding an additional level of richness and frankly, uh, you know, a, a high quality technical aspect of the conversation to converting policy into outcomes in, a, in an efficient, effective way. Um, I, I think Very refreshing. I hope people agree. I mean, you can turn on the TV tonight and watch the political talking heads argue endlessly about stuff that and at the end of the day doesn't really change people's lives. Or you can listen to Gov Actually and learn from people like Amanda about what's necessary um, to roll up sleeves and make a difference in people's lives. So um, I don't know, it was inspiring and I hope to have more guests on like her. They're doing the, the work that actually makes government work. Yeah, it's a partnership. And for the government to work effectively, it's not just about the government, it's about others as well. So, all right, Dan, till next all right, time. Danny. All right, be well, you take too. care. Thanks Bye -bye. for listening. <laughs> Same. <laughs>